You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So Mark 14 is where we are. Mark 14. And we're actually skipping forward four chapters uh, today, three and a half chapters anyway. And we're going to go back to Mark 11 next week and uh, kind of pick it up from where we left off. But last week we finished Mark 10 with the story of blind Bartimaeus. And it's this story that puts in really story form what prayer is. It doesn't mention the word prayer, but it shows us what it looks like to pour your heart out to God in the way that blind Bartimaeus was crying out passionately to God, persistently, even through rebukes, what it means to honestly pray to God. We got to see all of that last week. And I want to um, tie together prayer. And you remember last week we said that as important as breathing is to your physical life, so is prayer to your spiritual life. I want to try to tie all of that together in the importance that we looked at last week to communion with God and getting to know God. I want to tie that together with this scene in Mark 14 of Jesus in the garden with his disciples. I want to tie this idea of prayer together with what we see between the two passages. So in light of that, in Mark 14, let me just reorient us to the book of Mark. The first eight chapters deal with the question of who is Jesus? Like, who is this man that we're seeing here? That's the first eight chapters. The second eight chapters, chapters 9 through 16, deal with the question, what did this man Jesus come to do? And, uh, and, and we're told in the book of Mark what that is. He, he didn't come to serve, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're all told that he has come to give his life away so that you and I could have life. That is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus has come. And then in Mark 14, uh, when, when you pick it up there, he is on the eve of this thing going down, uh, of, his, of this big moment of him giving his life away so that you and I could have it. He is on the eve of that. And he's got his disciples in an upper room, and they are, uh, they are uh, you know, eating their last supper together, he is instituting the Lord's Supper. They're, they take the bread and they take the, the, the wine and he's saying, do you see these two elements? Do you see what we're eating tonight? That this bread is gonna be my body broken for you. And this wine is gonna be my blood spilled for you. My blood so that you don't have to shed your blood. This is what he's showing in the Lord's Supper. And then after that last supper, he takes his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson um, says about the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. And that's where you pick it up in Mark 14, verse 32. Mark 14, verse 32 says this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I, uh, while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, he says it like this. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. That's what's happening here. Verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Now that's the first half of this passage. If you take 32 through 42, this is kind of the first section of it. And this first section is dealing with Jesus praying to his father. And, and you see the deep sort of distress and agony that just marks that, this praying. You know, in, in Luke, in his account of this, it said the agony was so deep that he began to sweat drops of blood. That is deep, deep, deep distress. And he's looking up to his father and he's praying, if there is another way, if there is another way we can do this, if this cup can pass from me, let's go with that. And when he's saying the cup, that is a symbolic thing in the Bible, meaning God's wrath. He's saying, God, if there is a way for me to save these people apart from bearing your wrath for them, let's go that way, but not my will, but yours. It's this sort of deep distress. He knows that he is on the eve of feeling for the first time alienation from his father as he bears the wrath for your sin and my sin. It's that sort of distress being produced. Now, there are multiple sermons that we could have in that little section there. But I'm foregoing all of that this morning to get to the second half of the passage. Here's the second half, verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, so the first half of the passage is, is really centered on Jesus looking up to his father and praying honestly to his father, passionately, pouring his heart out to God, to his father, right? This is the first half of the passage. The second half of the passage is centered not on Jesus's praying, but on Jesus's pastoral warning to his disciples. It's not centered on his praying, it's centered on in the midst of deep distress and agony. Jesus pulling himself out of that to go have this tender moment with his disciples where he warns them, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation, that your spirit is so willing, but your flesh is so weak. It's this moment of him pastorally warning them. Jesus is looking at his disciples and in in essence, he's saying, you've got to wake up to these things. You have got to wake up to the reality that you have an enemy in you called the flesh. These deformed desires in you. You've got to wake up to that. And you've got to wake up to the fact that you have an enemy outside of you. The world, Satan, like a real enemy. You've got to wake up to these things. And in light of that, let me give you this warning. Watch and pray. Pay attention. Don't fall asleep. See what's going on here. Like he's giving them this sort of a warning. And can I just say, I think that that same warning is so needed in the room today. It is so needed in this room on this morning. We need to be reminded that we have an enemy in us, the flesh. We have an enemy outside of us. 
the world, Satan. And in light of that, we have got to watch and pray. We have got to stay awake. We have a unique capacity to absolutely wreck our lives on the rocks of sin. A unique capacity to do that. And in light of that, the tone of this passage, and really I hope, by God's grace, the tone of this message is that sort of a pastoral warning from Jesus to you and I to stay awake, to pay attention, to be alert to these things. And so in light of that, here's what I want to do. I want to spend our time in verse 38. And I want to allow three questions to explain what it is that Jesus is getting at in verse 38. So verse 38, three questions that deal with this, this warning that Jesus gives. <laughs> and I, I just want you to see and feel maybe like Jesus down on one knee looking you directly in the eye this morning and imploring you to pay attention, to, st- to stay awake, to, to keep your eyes up, like to hear. Just Jesus imploring you to watch and to pray not wanting you to fall, not wanting you to wreck your life. Watch and pray. And so three questions. Number one, dealing with verse 38. Number one, what is temptation? Question number one, what is temptation? Or maybe you could think of it this way. What is this thing that Jesus is warning us against in verse 38? What is that? Temptation. So I'm gonna put a definition up on the screen for you. What is temptation? It's anything that has the effect of seducing us into sin and away from a love of God. Temptation is anything in your life that has the ability to seduce you into sin away from God. That's a temptation. Now let me clarify that temptation is not sin. It's the seductive invitation to sin. That's a temptation. I like how one commentator put it. He said, temptation is an invitation to be untrue to God. See, like what temptation does, if you cut it to its core, temptation is about seducing you into really believing that the deepest cravings of your heart can be satisfied apart from God. This is what a temptation is. It's the seductive sort of invitation into here's sin. Come and be satisfied over here as if you can be. Maybe just for the sake of imagery, maybe you could think of it this way. Picture two islands. Island number one over here is you. It's obedience to God. It's, It's your heart being full in God. This is island one over here. Then picture island two over there. We'll call that the island of sin, death, and destruction. That's island two, you're on island one. What temptation does, what temptation is, is it is the Satan-built bridge made out of fool's gold, right? It's glittering, it looks so good, but it's the Satan-built bridge from island two, sin, death, and destruction, over to your life, island one. That bridge right there is temptation. It's not the sin, but it's this alluring bridge to get you to sin. That's temptation. Okay, now let me press this one step further. When when he's talking about this verse and what he is warning, he is not warning just against temptation. Like his warning is, don't enter into temptation. So the question is, what is entering into temptation? What is that thing? 
Okay, now to help with that, and really I'm about to wear you out on some John Owen this morning. He was a pastor of, a Puritan pastor of about four centuries ago, and I think he has written the gold standard on like ideas of indwelling sin, the flesh that's still in you, how to put that to death, and in particular on temptation. He has written some brilliant stuff on that that I don't think has been matched since. And so in light of that, I want to give you some John Owen this morning from four centuries ago, kind of speaking into our current situation today. And in, in addressing this idea of what does it mean to enter into temptation, he, uh, he first uses the imagery of a house. And so he, he says, put yourself in a house, and here is the difference between temptation and entering into temptation. Temptation, which we all face every single day constantly. Temptation is when sin comes to your door and starts knocking on your door. That's temptation. Now, here's the truth about a knock at the door. We can ignore that all day long. We do that often, right? People come to your door, and if you don't want to answer, you just act like no one's knocking. And you keep doing what you're doing, right? That's not that difficult of a thing to do. It's pretty easy. Right, so, so that is temptation. It's the constant knocks at your door that happen all day, every day, um, that, that are just like that distant allurement into sin. Now, that is different than entering into temptation. Entering into temptation, he says, is this. When temptation picks the lock of your door, bypasses the door, makes it past the door, and sits down on the couch for a nice long conversation with you. That's entering into temptation. That's what the Puritans used to call when sin has picked the lock, entered into the house, and sat down for a conversation. That's what they used to call the hour of temptation. Now listen to John Owen describe the hour of temptation. This will be on the screen for you. He says, Every great and pressing temptation has its hour, a season where it grows to a head, where it is most vigorous, active, operative, and prevalent. It may be long in rising, like knocked on the door for a long, long time. It may be long in knocking and rising, but it has a dangerous hour when most men will enter it. Hence that very temptation, which at one time has little or no power on a man. It's just a knock at the door. That same temptation that he can despise, he can scorn the motions of it, easily resist it. At another time, when it slipped the lock and sat down for the conversation, at another time, it bears him away silent before it. How can we recognize when a temptation has come to its hour? A temptation has come to its hour when it is restless, urgent, when it is arguing. Like it's no longer knocking at the door. It has busted the door down and it is giving you every reason why you should jump into this sin. It is, time, it is a time of battle and sin will give the soul no rest. Satan sees his advantage, the convergence of his forces and knows that he must prevail or be hopeless forever. Satan pushes this opportunity and time of advantage with, I love these words, with special pleas and promises. You're on the couch with temptation and it has given you its best pleas, its special pleas on why you should jump into that. All that it will satisfy, all of these promises. He has taken some ground in his arguments and seeks to gain more. 
And, and here's one argument he'll give you when he's, when he's on the couch, the hour of temptation. He reminds us of a full pardon after the sin. There's grace. You'll be fine. God will forgive you. He reminds us the full pardon of sin. He realizes that if he does not win now, he will lose the opportunity. When a temptation presses in upon us through our imagination and reason, in other words, we're thinking about it all the time. We can't get it off of our brain. We're reasoning about it. We're giving, we're giving ourselves every reason why it is that we should jump after that thing. And when opportunities and advantages press us on every side, so not only are we thinking about it, giving ourselves every reason to do it, but we've also got opportunity to do it. This is the hour of temptation. We may know when all of those things are present that the hour of its power has come. If you want to maybe put yourself into the shoes of one of these moments, think back to our man David in the Bible. You remember him? He was a handsome man. He was a powerful man, ended up being one of the kings of Israel. He is one of like the little H heroes in the Bible. This is David. Jesus is the big H hero, but he was a little H hero in the Bible. And being handsome and being powerful and being a king, I think it is okay to assume throughout, the, you know, throughout his life that he had many moments where he could have wrecked his life with many women who would have been willing to do that with him. He had many of those moments. This was not an, you know, a one-time thing in his life, but this was a thing that repeatedly happened to him. But he had one moment that was different from all the rest. See, all, you know, most of them were just knocks at the door. But he had one moment where temptation picked the lock, slipped inside of the house, and sat down on the couch beside him. Here's that moment, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2 says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2. It happened. Sin or temptation just picked the lock and it's come in. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And if you know how the story goes, you know that he, he bit the bait. He took it down deep into his belly, if you know how the story works. And you know the rest of his life, if you know kind of reading forward in his life, you know that he had to digest the, the, the poisonous, bitter fruit of that sin for the rest of his life. It's one of the saddest moments in the Bible. And, and here's what I'm trying to convince you of with, with just what Jesus is saying here, is that I don't know when your hour of temptation is coming, I don't know what form it will take. I don't know what sort of hook it will have for you. If it's going to be in the form of a man or a woman, if it's going to be in the form of money, if it's going to be in the form of immorality, I have no idea the form it's going to take. I don't know when it's going to come for you. But here is what Jesus is saying to all of us. It's coming. It's coming. You live in a universe full of temptation because we really have an enemy called Satan who the Bible says is a tempter. And it's just a matter of time before your moment arises. 
before it's your hour of temptation, before temptation has not just knocked at your door, but picked the lock and sat down on the couch beside you and has every intention of destroying your life. That is coming for you. It's coming for me. It's coming for every one of us. And that's what Jesus is warning us about. Entering into temptation, the hour of temptation. He's saying, you've got to stay awake to these things. You've got to beware of these things. You've got to pay attention to these things. It is coming for all of us. Second question. First question is, what's temptation? What is he warning us about? Second question is, why is he warning us against these things? Why, what, I mean, what is the big deal here? Why is he warning us so strongly against this entering into temptation? Verse 38 got the answer. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, why should we watch and pray? Here's, here's the reason. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, if you need a passage to memorize, get that one. You need to know that about yourself. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, when the Bible is talking about the flesh, let me just give a quick theology of what the flesh is. The flesh is your inner desires that have been deformed and distorted by sin. That's the flesh. Sometimes in the Bible, it's called the old man or this old nature. Um, you, you might think of it as the flesh is that, that part inside of you that is constantly at war with God and what he's wanting in your life. That's the flesh. These deformed desires, these distorted desires, these desires that have been totally altered and marred by sin. Now, Ephesians 2 tells us that before we become a Christian, before we put our faith in Jesus, trust and treasure Jesus, that we are ruled by the flesh. That the flesh is the reigning master in our life. That we are carried about by our deformed and distorted desires. That's us. But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, grace invades. The Spirit of God takes up residence in us, and that old master of the flesh, these deformed desires, that old master is dethroned, and the Spirit of God takes its place. We now have this new ruling master of God, the Spirit of God in our life. That's the good news. But I want you to hear this very clearly. There is going to be a day where the flesh in us is completely destroyed. But we're not in that day yet. When you become a Christian, here's what happens. That, that old ruling master of the flesh, it is dethroned in you, but it is not yet destroyed in you. It no longer rules, but it still remains. That flesh, that old man, those deformed and distorted desires, they still live in you. Maybe you can think of it this way. Those old desires that have been dethroned in your life as the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your heart, it's almost like they have receded into the jungles of your heart where they wage this guerrilla warfare. And if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that the flesh often comes out in you in shocking and surprising ways, don't you? Shocking ways. And Jesus is saying, in light of that, the flesh that's still in you, these deformed desires that still live in you and are alive in you, in light of that, you have to know you are capable of the worst of sins. 
that you are weak, that you are frail, that you are so prone to wonder and to fall in unbelievable ways. You've got to know that about yourself. See, what Jesus is trying to do here is to help the disciples have a realistic picture of themselves. Just how weak they are. Just how capable of the worst of sins they are. I love how J.C. Ryle, old Anglican bishop, how he described this. This will be on the screen for you. He says, there is no sin so great, but a great saint may fall into it. And on the other hand, there is no saint so great, but that he may fall into a great sin. Now hear that. You've got to know this about you. That there is no sin so great that you could not commit it. And I don't care how good you think you are in the Christian life. You are not so good that you could not commit the greatest sin. Now, do you know that about you? Seriously, do you know that you're that capable, you personally? Do you know that about you? And maybe I can try to convince you this way. Think about all the little H heroes in the Bible. Like the people we love to read about and sing about and think about and tell stories about in the Bible. Think think about Abraham. He's got a rap sheet. There was a point in his life where he tried to give his wife away to another man to save his own skin. How about our man Moses? He's got one too. He killed a man. How about our man David? We just saw his. He not only um, committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he also killed her husband to cover his own tracks. Now, what is the Bible trying to show us in that these little H heroes in the Bible have these sort of things on their rap sheet? What is it trying to show us? Is it trying to show us that the worst of people can commit the worst of sins? No. The Bible is trying to convince you and me that the absolute best of us can commit the worst of sins. The absolute best of us in the room are capable of the absolute worst things. And I'm asking you personally, do you feel that deep in your bones? Until you feel that deep in your bones, can I just tell you this? You are uniquely susceptible to the worst of sins. And maybe if you need more um, convincing of this, think about Peter in this passage. In the preceding passage, the one right before this whole episode in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what happens right before that? In the preceding passage, Jesus looks at all of his disciples and says, "Um, hey guys, you are all about to fall away. And do you remember, you remember uh, Peter's response to, to Jesus? Jesus, do you know who you're talking to? This is Peter. You called me the rock. I didn't call, you're calling me that. This is Peter. Now, these other morons, they might. But I, I am with you to the death, Jesus. Okay, now, can we just see, this is a picture of the Spirit being willing Thank God the Spirit is willing. There are many of us right now who when we think about sin and temptation, we are thinking this. There is no way I'm saying yes to that. Thank God for the Spirit being willing in our life. But now let's go to the other side. You start reading forward in Mark 14 and here's what you find. And by the way, remember what Jesus says back to Peter? Peter, Peter, Peter. The rooster's gonna crow twice. And by the time that happens, you're going to already have denied me three times. That, that's what's about to happen, Peter. And so you just keep reading forward, and here's what you find. Verse 66 and on. 
that a little servant girl looks at Peter and says, hey, uh, weren't you with that guy? And Peter's like, no, no way I was with that guy. I don't know that guy. Three times he denies. In verse 72 of Mark 14, it's just one of those sad verses in the Bible. The rooster crows for the second time. Peter realizes what just happened. And it says he literally broke down and wept. That is a picture of the, you know, preceding passage, the spirit being willing. But this is a picture, the, the passage on the backside of it, of the flesh being weak. And you just have to know that you are that weak. That it would be foolish for you, like Peter, to look at me and say, no, you don't know who I am. You don't know who you're talking to here. I'm not capable of those. Yes, you are. The worst of sin. Think of the worst sin you can think of. The worst. You, you, you are capable of that. You are. I am. And until we know that, we are going to be uniquely susceptible to it. We all have to feel deep in our bones that the flesh is weak. Those deformed desires still live in us and they come out in shocking ways. Shocking ways. So that's the why. Why did Jesus warn us? Because the flesh is weak. Now here's where that leaves us though. I think it leaves us thinking Well, if temptation, like the hour of temptation is that difficult, and if we are that weak, what are we to do? Like, what hope do we have? And Jesus addresses it. He addresses, how do you go about resisting the hour of temptation and not entering into the hour of temptation? How do you resist? And he says two things in verse 38. In verse 38, he says, you watch and you pray. You watch and pray and you pray. Let's take watch first. That we're to watch. We're to be people who are alert, who are paying attention, eyes wide awake to what's happening around us and in us, to watch. You know, I think one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible is Luke 4.13. This is right after Satan has tempted Jesus in the desert. And after he finishes, he doesn't get what he wants, It says that Satan withdrew from Jesus and waited until an opportune time. Now hear that. Waited until an opportune time. I I want you to think about this. If if I were to come up to you after the service is over today and I were to say, uh, hey, you're not gonna believe what happened last night. I met a guy that just got out of prison for murdering like 14 people. And the dude had like 16 knives in his pockets and four guns. Never seen anything like it. And he told me he wants to kill you. Have a good day. And this this picture, we had that conversation. Now, I want you to think about how you would leave church this morning. You'd be leaving church like this. I mean, you're looking around every corner, your head's on a swivel. Man, when you think about how you would leave the house tomorrow morning. Man, you'd be looking out the blind. Is that crazy guy, 16 nights? Is he out there somewhere? Where is this guy? You would, be, you would be watching, wouldn't you? If you knew a crazy guy was trying to kill you, your head would constantly be on a swivel. You would be looking everywhere. You would, the goal of your life would be to figure out where the crazy guy is and how to stay away from him. 
Okay, now let that be a picture of reality. Actually, the Bible actually says there is a crazy guy. His name is Satan. And he actually has like weapons of temptation meant to kill you, destroy everything in your life. That that is a reality. But you know what's crazy? Is we walk out of our house every day without paying any attention to it. And this is what Jesus is saying. You've got to watch. There is a guy that wants to kill you. Check the blinds. Get your head on a swivel. Be paying attention to these things. And let me give you three or a couple of ways. I'm going to give you two. Two ways that we should be watching in our life. Way number one. (laughs) We should be watching ourselves. That we should labor to get a sense of and know ourselves. Like your own heart. Your own propensities towards sin. See, the Bible says we're all made in the image of God. That means we're all made, there's a lot of commonalities between all of us in the room. But it also is going to say that we're all made uniquely in the image of God. That means there are specific things about you that make you particularly vulnerable to sin in certain areas that the person beside you might not be so vulnerable in that particular area. And you need to know what your areas are. I am amazed at how, generally speaking, we are all very unaware of the the propensities of our own heart and the tendencies of our own heart. We're all very lackadaisical when it comes to knowing ourselves in those sort of ways. Like really thinking about where are we personally uniquely vulnerable? Uniquely vulnerable. Where, Where are we vulnerable to these things? There is, maybe you could think of it this way. I think it would be a helpful exercise for everyone in the room to take a moment to to put yourselves into the shoes of Satan and then to look at your life and ask the question, if I were wanting to like destroy everything in his life, how would I come into his, his or her life? What would I do? What sort of temptations would I bait him with? What would I do to try to destroy him? You should know the answer to that question. You should think about that. You should ask your wife for insight or your husband for insight into that. You should talk to your community, your home group about that. This would be a great thing in the context of your home group for everyone to answer that question. How am I uniquely vulnerable to the attacks of Satan? You need to know yourself in these sorts of ways. So so you've got to labor to know yourself. And secondly, I want to encourage you to beware, to pay attention to sin's beginnings, to the beginning of sin in your life, for you to pay attention to this. Let me give you an imagery as to why this is important. I want you to imagine two yards. Here's yard number one. Yard number one uh, has a massive oak tree in it. This oak tree is like a hundred years old. It's got roots that are so big and so deep and so wide that it's unbelievable. The trunk on this thing is massive. The branches are huge. It is a big oak tree. That's yard one. Yard number two also has an oak tree. But this little oak tree is like six, you know, six inches tall. It's got like five little cute leaves on it. It's that oak tree. So, so yard two, six inches. Yard one, a hundred foot tall, massive oak tree. Now, I want you to imagine me coming to you and me saying, uh, hey, I need you to go, to go to the yard and cut down the oak tree. We need to go take care of that thing. Now, which oak tree are you hoping for? 
Yard two, right? Because yard two takes a ruthless yank and you're in good shape. Yard one takes like a month and a small army and now you've got a tree cut down. Now let that be an image for you on dealing with sin and so many of our problems. That we wait until sin has grown and blossomed and dug its roots in and then we're trying to deal with it. We're trying to deal with it up here in the actions when actions have become behaviors and behaviors have become these addictions and these habits and all of that. We're trying to deal with it when it gets that bad. When it's like, man, I can't like get in the front door because there's an oak tree in the yard. We, We deal with it then. As opposed to when sin is still down here, the little oak tree, still not even in your actions yet, but in your affections. How you feel, what you love, what you desire. And listen, can we just all acknowledge that we need to grow in the art of dealing with sin in the affections? What, what, we, what we love, what we desire, what we're pursuing. See, in the affections, it's dealing with the, with the small oak tree. By the time you get to the actions and the full blooming of sin in your life, then you're dealing with the massive 100-year-old, deeply dug-in oak tree. Whole different ballgame. See, and here's one of the, the hard things about sin and why it's so important to catch it at its beginnings and to pay attention to these things, to watch for these things. Sin has a way of growing very gradually in our life. It works more like the tides than a tidal wave. Very, very gradually. Think about how a tree grows. You walk by it every day and there's never like a day where you're like, wow, that grew like six inches overnight. It doesn't do that. It's this subtle growth, this very small growth. But over time, it creeps in and creeps in and creeps in until you realize it's crept so far in that it now has you by the neck and you can't get free from it. See, sin has a way of of fooling us. We think that we've got a handle on sin, and one day we wake up and realize, no, it's actually got the handle on us. This is why we've got to be very ruthless and aware of sin at its beginnings, and we deal decisively with it then, ruthlessly with it then. I I love the words of Horatius Bonner on this. And let me just maybe encourage you with this. He's encouraging us to think about the small things in our life. That that sin at its beginnings. So so listen to what he says here. And I want to just implore you for you to think about these small things. These seemingly insignificant things in your life that most people around you would say, that's not a big deal. I want you to think about this because all of those things that people would say that's not a big deal are a big deal. They are going somewhere. Little sins have their aim at becoming big sins. Okay, so listen to what he says. The avoidance of little evils, little sins, little inconsistencies, little weaknesses, little follies, little indiscretions, little imprudences, little faults. Just think about this. Where are their little faults? Little indulgences of self and of the flesh. Little acts of laziness or indecision or sloppiness or cowardice. Little equivocations or aberrations from high integrity. I mean, where where are you just willing to kind of stretch the truth? I mean, it's kind of one of those white lies. That's what he's saying here. Little touches of shabbiness and meanness. Little indifferences to the feelings or wishes of others. 
little outbreaks of temper or crossness or selfishness or vanity, the avoidance of such little things as these go goes far to make up at least the negative beauty of a holy life. In other words, it's not telling you everything you should be, but it's at least telling you that these things are massively important to cut out of your life, to deal ruthlessly with. So can I just ask you the question, where are there little things that are happening in you right now that no one else even knows about? And can I encourage you to think about your affections for a second and your desires for a moment? Like what it is that you really love in your life, that you're pursuing, that you think about. Like what are those things? And listen, if that isn't Jesus at the top of the list, saturating everything else, there is a deep, deep problem. And that problem is not small. That problem is big and it is going to big places in your life. Hey, I want to just give you this warning as maybe something to think about. Travis and I were talking about this uh, this week. Uh, Travis Wyckoff, he's on staff with us. And in many of our conversations with people at our church family, here's, here's where the problem is. It's in the affections. It's in the desires. It's in what we love. And in light of that, it is so important for you to think about in your life How do you do things in your life that are stirring in you and growing in you affections for Jesus? And for you to think about in your life the things that you do that deaden your affections for Jesus, that do not grow how you feel about and how you desire Jesus. You've got to think about your life in these sort of ways. And in light of that, we were talking about just the burden that we feel for so many of us in the room, ourself included, and the damage, listen to this, that the screen does to us, the screen. I'm talking TV, I'm talking your phone, I'm talking your iPad, I'm talking your computer, the damage that it does to us. I think about how most of us unwind at the end of a day. You know how most of it goes? We flip the TV on and we veg for an hour and a half. Now listen, It's a very subtle thing, but when you think about what's happening, ask yourself the question. At the end of that hour and a half, are my affections for Jesus, have they grown or have they diminished? And you know what you're going to find at the end of that hour and a half when you veg in front of a TV? They have diminished every time. Every time. So I'm just asking you to think about, and listen, it may not be the TV for you. You may have like cut cable. Travis and I both have, you know what we found ourselves doing? Checking ESPN like 94 times a day. So you can replace it with a million other things. But I'm just asking you to think about, in your normal routines in your life, are you doing things that are growing your affection for Jesus or just subtly deadening your affections for Jesus? And listen, this is what it means to be aware of the beginnings of sin. What it is that you're feeling and thinking and wanting in your life, namely in regards to Jesus, thinking about those things, being aware and watching those things. So the first thing he says to do is watch, but then he goes on and says, I don't want you to just watch. I also want you to watch and pray, pray. Now that's interesting. He says prayer. So I want you to hear this. Last week we said, this is important as breathing is to your, your physical life, so is prayer to your spiritual life. And last week the focus was on, because it is our way of knowing God and communing with God. But it's also our way, one of our best ways of fighting against sin in our life. Hear that. 
one of the reasons prayer is as important as breathing is because it is one of the primary ways we fight against sin. This isn't the only time the Bible talks about it in these terms. Jesus tells us to pray against temptation, against entering into it. He also tells us in Ephesians 6, think about this, in Ephesians 6, this is the longest section on spiritual warfare in the Bible. And do you remember how Ephesians 6 ends that section? Ephesians 6, 18, Paul says, in light of this whole spiritual warfare thing that we're all in, do this now. Pray at all times in the Spirit. This is how we fight against sin. Now the question is, how does, how does prayer do that? Why do we pray? Why, how does prayer help us fight against sin? How does that happen? So I want to try to answer th- this question by saying it this way. By praying, by, by reminding ourselves of, of who we are because of Jesus, what we have in Jesus, by praying, by pouring our heart out to God, By doing all of those things, we are doing what the the Puritans used to call, and I love this terminology. By praying, we're doing what they used to call storing up gospel provisions. Hear that. When we pray, we are storing up gospel provisions in our heart. Listen to John Owen one more time address this. He says it this way. He says, and it should be on the screen for you. Be sure to lay up provision in store against the approaching of any temptation. Now he goes on to describe it like this. He uses this imagery. He says, imagine that you're in an army and you you want to besiege this fort that's in front of you. But you realize as the army, man, that that fort is like (laughs) well-manned. They are well-supplied, well-stocked. He says, think about what you would do if (laughs) if you're in that army. If you're in that army, chances are you're going to be thinking this. Can't we like find another fort that would be easier to pick on? And he's saying the same thing happens with Satan and temptation. When Satan comes along and finds a heart well manned and well provided, well supplied, he will oftentimes bypass that one and go to the next one. He says this is the importance of storing up gospel provisions. Then he goes on and says this. Gospel provisions will do this work. (coughs) That is, gospel provisions keep the heart full of a sense of the love of God in Christ. Listen to this next line. This is the greatest uh, preservative against the power of temptation in the world. Greatest preservative against temptation? What is it? Keeping your heart full of a sense of the love of Christ. So he goes on. So store the, the heart, your heart, with a sense of the love of God in Christ and his love in the shedding of it. Get a relish of the privileges we have thereby, our adoption, our justification, our acceptance with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of his death and you will, in an, order, in an ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security as to the disturbances of temptations. Are you seeing that? That is what prayer is meant to do. Stock your heart full of gospel provisions. We have oftentimes illustrated the two ways to fight against temptation with Greek mythology. So I want to do this one more time, and I want to use this illustration again because I really want it to be woven into the fabric of our church. I want you to know this illustration. So, you know, the two ways that you can go about fighting um, sin and temptation, one way is to say, I'm just going to muster up the willpower to say no. So we're going to deal with the will and the action. I'm just going to say no. I'm just going to convince myself in the moment, I've got to say no. 
That's one way of dealing with it. Another way of dealing with it is to deal with your heart and your affections, what it is that you want and love, that, dealing with it that way. So to illustrate that, Greek mythology is really helpful. So um, <coughs> one commander, his name was Ulysses, and he has his army, and <coughs> they're in these boats, and they are about to go around the infamous island of the Sirens. Now, the sirens had the face of a woman and the body of a bird. I mean, nasty things. I don't know what to think about them. But when they opened their mouth, they could sing the most seductive song that you have ever seen. And so all of these passerbys would come by unsuspectingly. The sirens would open their mouth. They would start singing. And their song was so alluring that these boats and ships with all these men would, would you know, start steering toward the island, crash into the banks to their death. Now, Ulysses knew about this, though. He knew about these sirens. He knew about their seductive song. So he got rope and he got earplugs and they set off. And they're about to come around the island, and he dishes out all the earplugs to his, you know, to his little officers. And he commands them, you put the earplugs in, and you row for your life. But for Ulysses, he didn't put any earplugs in because he wanted to hear the songs. So he got the rope, and he tied himself to the mast where he could not move. He could just hear. So his men rode for their life, and all the while, if, if he could have just slipped through the ropes, he would have gladly jumped out into the water because he loved the song. He loved it. His heart was tuned to the song, but it, the only thing that kept him in was his, ro- you know, his hands being tied with the rope. Now that is how many of us fight against temptation. Everything in us is saying, I want to jump in. But we figured out some way to just tie our hands to the mast. And so let's just take pornography as an illustration. Our heart is tuned to the song. We prize the song that, that pornography is singing to us. We love it. But, but in order just to kind of tie our hands, we kind of get the covenant eyes in our computer. Man, we'll get the computer into the living room. If we get real crazy, we'll even get the computer out of our house. It's tying our hands to the mast. And listen, there is a place for that. There is a place for dealing aggressively with kind of the boundaries around how sin works in our life. But listen to me here. If your heart loves sin, I don't care what kind of ropes you tie your wrist to the mast to, you will find a way to get out of them and jump. You'll find a way eventually. And this is where Jason is really helpful for us. Jason also had his crew of men. And he was coming to the infamous island of the Sirens as well. But they stocked no earplugs and they brought along no rope. They brought along instead a man named Orpheus. He was the renowned musician of the day. And when he played his song, every jaw dropped. It was breathtaking. So here they come around the infamous island of the Sirens. No earplugs, no ropes. All Jason did was order Orpheus to play his best, sweetest song that he had. And you know what strangely happened? That superior song broke the back of the siren's seductive song. No man in the ship was wanting to jump out because they had everything they wanted right in front of them. Now that is the way to deal with sin. It's to tune your heart to Jesus' more satisfying song. That's how you do it. 
This is how sin is fought against. See, we've got this misconception that the surest way to resist temptation and sin is to tie ourselves to the mask, to just make ourselves say, no, don't do it. That is not the best way to fight sin. The best way to fight sin is to store up gospel provisions in your heart, to have your heart tuned to the song of Jesus. And it's when you get your heart tuned to that all-satisfying song that all of these songs of these tempting little sirens around you, all the tempting power will be broke in them. And can you see how prayer relates to that? Prayer is the way, reading the Bible and praying those into your heart, praying those gospel promises are the way you store up those gospel provisions in your soul, in your heart. Now let me finish with this. I am just acutely aware that when we talk about temptation in a room like this and sin and wrecking our lives, that there are many in the room who have fallen very, very hard into sin. And you have honestly wrecked a lot of things in your life and those around you. And if that's you, I want you to look at me right in the eye. This is why the good news of the gospel is such great news. Because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, here is what you have to know this morning. That it doesn't matter how far you have fallen, what you have fallen into, grace can cover it all. And if you're a son or daughter of God, it has covered it all. Your guilt has been removed. The shame of your sin, when you think about it, it has been removed because of the person and work of Jesus. And you need to feel that deep in your bones. And the truth is we have all fallen, right? So we all need to feel the good news of the gospel deep in our bones right now in this moment. That it removes the guilt and the stain and the shame of sin. Now to to the others in the room who this morning, you feel like you've been fairly faithful. Can, Can I just give you this warning, 1 Corinthians 10, 12? Take heed lest you fall. Watch and pray. Watch and pray, watch and pray. J.C. Ryle says it this way. We may be sure that men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Like Peter, they first disregard the Lord's warning to watch and pray. And then like Peter, their strength is gone. And in the hour of temptation, They deny their Lord. Gosh, I just pray that wouldn't be us. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.